everyone. Welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. I'm Taylor McGowan, Senior Wealth Design Specialist at Altius Financial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Williams, founder and president of Altius Financial. Hey, everybody. So today's episode is the risk and return of investing. Investing is kind of one of those weird taboo things where I feel some people will say, oh, oh, I know everything about investing or oh, I I know quite a bit about investing. And other people will say, "Ah, I don't know, that's for the finance folks. I don't don't know anything about that. And so I think today is great for us to kind of teach this this kind of basics that isn't often really discussed and kind of laid out for people in layman's terms and just kind of clarify what is investing, what can I invest in, what kind of risk am I facing, what are the returns of what I'm doing, and maybe give some newer investors some next steps. That sounds like a good uh, good plan, Taylor. First of all, we've got to do a little disclaimer, just a quick reminder that any discussion we have on our podcast is not meant to be any direct advice applied to any specific individual. We recommend reaching out to, if you have one, your own financial team or reaching out to us directly if you're looking for anyone to help you make better financial decisions or if you want to talk about specific investments or financial advice. If you're looking for someone, you can reach us at our website, www.altiusfinancial.com or certainly you can get a hold of Taylor or myself with using our first names and the at altiusfinancial.com. So Taylor, at altsfinancial.com or michael at altsfinancial.com and we'd be happy to talk to you. What is investing and really what can I invest in? We oftentimes go through kind of a introduction to investing spiel with our new clients and prospects. And so I think it's kind of helpful for us to maybe talk a little bit about some of that on the podcast today. Yeah, but we don't do spiels. We we give presentations. <laughs> right? I kind of like the word spiel. I don't even know why. Do you really? It has a good. That's interesting. Most most people think of spiel as okay, someone's going to sell me something. Versus this is a professional presentation. But in any case, yeah. you're right. We we have we have a presentation <laughs> that we give to people that's not canned, but you know it's similar whenever we give it to a client, just so there's some uniformity to it. And we'll be kind of walking through some of those concepts. You want to start into the spiel, or you want me to? <laughs> well, so Mike. Kind of one of the first things we start with saying is, okay, well, what are you doing when you're investing? What, what is that going to really get you? And so the most simple concepts, like this is your easiest concept you're going to come away with is what is investing? Investing is a return of and a return on my capital. So essentially, if you put money into any type of investment, or if you put time, energy, if you put something into your investment, you want to get that back. And then some. Yeah, sometimes we uh, confuse people by the term capital. And we've touched on that concept in other podcasts. But it, in this context, we're just talking about the money that you have, the, mo- the savings that you have. I mean, we just kind of distinguish savings from investing. Savings is like, okay, it's going to be an account real stable, you know, savings account or a checking account or something where I'm just putting my money away to not have any risk, but just to have at least nominally stability. So I don't see any gain or loss on it. Maybe I have a little tiny, tiny, especially today with low interest rates, little tiny return, but but it's basically for stability versus now graduating to the idea of investing your savings. And that's where we start to use investment or capital. But when you say a return of it, so you want your money back, basically. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I want a return of my money. You know, The first thing is when I invest is, well, I want to get my money back. 
And the second one is I want to get something on it. I want to get a return on it. I want to get some extra money back. And that's, that's a basic idea. That's what an investment is. So when you, as opposed to consumption, when we, when we buy food or buy even a car or even some, some kind of durable good like that, we know that it depreciates rather than appreciates. It doesn't go up in value. It just typically goes down in value. Now, there are rare cases where a car might go up in value, but we don't usually consider those investments. So we're talking about things that will give you your money back and then some at least have a chance of that. Yeah. So I feel it's kind of worthwhile to list out some of these. Um, if we were sitting in an office with a bunch of strangers and I said, okay, raise your hand. What is something that you can invest in? I bet you $1,000, which if you know me, I don't like betting big numbers, but I bet you $1,000 that someone would have listed, oh, my 401k or my 403b account. That is something I can invest in. And we're going to get to that in a second, but I want to tell you that I'm sorry you got that one wrong. <laughs> um, because uh, investment accounts, while you can invest into them, that is not something that you are investing directly in. And so things that we are like to look at to say, okay, well, what can I invest directly in? That's when you're saying, okay, am I buying real estate? Am I buying businesses? So people like to use the word stocks. Stocks just mean businesses. You're buying equity in a business. Maybe that is your small company that you just started yourself. Maybe that's your best friend's company. Maybe that's a little bit of Google. It can really be any kind of equity. And then you kind of get into, well, what are the more lending type investments as well. So things that you can invest in directly that are from more of a lending, a borrower perspective is, okay, well, if you were a bank, it's an investment to give someone a mortgage because you're going to get a guaranteed return of whatever the interest rate is on that. Guaranteed, assuming they pay you back. Assuming right? they pay you back. Yeah. <laughs> with the risk. Um, on the flip side, if you're giving your money to a bank and you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to buy bonds, I'm going to buy government savings bonds, then you're lending money to the government, assuming that, okay, as long as the government doesn't default, I'm getting X percent back each month, each year, whatever the timeline is on that kind of lending investment. Yeah. Sometimes people categorize those big, big picture categories like real estate, stocks, or businesses, those kinds of things into equity, which you don't have any kind of fixed or understood ahead of time contractual rate of return or time period. So those are where you've got ownership and you are taking more risk versus having a contractual rate of return and a time period to come back. That's what we call the second kind fixed income, or like you said, loanership loan type assets where we, yeah. it's, it's, it's effectively some kind of loan to someone where there's that contractual agreed upon terms. Yeah. So now some of you are probably listening and going, well, I have an investment account and my investment account has mutual funds in it. So you never said mutual funds. Where does that fit into this picture? And mutual funds are, they're basically kind of a packaging. So we can say, okay, you can invest in individual businesses. You can invest in real estate, but maybe you're not so sure about that one business. Maybe you're saying, okay, should I invest in ExxonMobil or oh, do I want to invest in all oil service type companies? So instead of investing in just one company, maybe you're investing in a bundle of them. And typically the easiest way to do that is through securitized products. So you would have like a mutual fund or an ETF, people who say, oh, I'm doing indexing. You're typically trying to find a fund that parallels to an index that you're interested in. 
Now you used ETF. Do you want to kind of go into that, what an ETF is? Yeah, so an ETF stands for an exchange traded fund. They're quite similar to a mutual fund, except they're traded intraday. So a mutual fund, you can only buy, they're kind of weird, but you can only buy a mutual fund at the end of the day, whereas ETFs you can buy throughout the day. So the price can change throughout the day. That's the main thing is that they're bundles of other securities like stocks or bonds or a combination of, or potentially real estate securities or, but they're bundled like a mutual fund. They're a collection that's trying to keep you diversified instead of just one company or one bond or something like that. The big distinction is they're traded intraday. So they have that kind of, that kind of pricing throughout the day and that kind of liquidity throughout the day. And a person can trade them a little bit more frequently, which may be a good or bad, depending on how well they're versed in those kinds of trades. But like you said, so we start with the the first thing. First category is what's the underlying thing that I'm trying to you know get my money back from and a return on and that's where we talk about you know real estate stocks or businesses. It's interesting because you said, you know, one of your friends businesses or something like that. Most people don't think of, you know, I have stock in my friend's business, but that's what it is. I mean, you, you, yeah. I mean, I have 100% stock right now in Altius. We're trying to change that over time, but you mentioned the example of Google, so a person might have a really small if they have a few shares or even lots of shares because it's a massive company, that means they have a fractional ownership in that business. But the first level is equities or fixed income. The next level is, well, how is it packaged, if at all? Or do I own shares directly or do I own things through a mutual fund or some other kind of Wall Street professionally diversified managed package? And then that third category, as you mentioned, uh, like 401ks or IRAs is the tax treatment. It doesn't tell you, if you if I say I have an IRA, it doesn't tell you what's what's it really invested in. It just says, okay, that's how it's treated from a tax perspective. So it's those three levels that we try to explain to people. The underlying investment, the professional packaging that you might want on there, and then the tax treatment. Yep, exactly. So, okay, well, what kind of risk is in my portfolio? Maybe those of you who are listening are saying, okay, well, I have, maybe you have an IRA account. And maybe in your mind, you thought, okay, well, I've been contributing to that every month. And if you don't have a financial advisor, then maybe you were just putting the money in and hey, if it's going up, that's great. And, but really, how do you know what what risk you're taking on that type of account? And my first step to you is, well, what's in the account? (laughs) So we, we just told you that just having the account itself, just having a 401k, an IRA, a SEP, whatever kind of account you have, that doesn't tell you anything about the investment that's underlying inside that account. It just tells you what the tax treatment is. So the first thing you want to do is look under the hood. You want to look at your statements, open up your page online and say, okay, well, where are their dollars allocated and what are they allocated into? So one of the first things you might be thinking is, okay, well, is your account all in one thing? I've seen this way more times than you would think, but we'll have people come to us and very kind, wonderful people. And they'll say, Hey, I'm looking for a financial advisor. I've got this account. And many times that account will just be in one specific holding, oftentimes in a mutual fund. So it's somewhat diversified, but the question is how much do you believe in that one mutual fund? So I think Mike can kind of tell where I'm going with this. It's just the concept of diversification. So what we typically tell people is if you know something, then you want to get more condensed on that one thing. But if you really don't know what's going to happen, that's when you want to diversify. And that's the concept of, okay, well, if I like five companies, they're all in the same industry. And I think one is the best. 
And if you invest in just that one company and things go wrong with that one company, you're going to see that on your portfolio. Now, if you invested in all five and the one that you thought you liked best doesn't do so well, but the other four are still doing great, that kind of protects part of your portfolio. So you're not seeing quite as much of a volatility if you have more eggs in your basket, so to say. Yeah. And of course, if they're all in the same industry, let's say you've got five companies you like, and they're all in the same industry, you use that example of uh, Exxon or oil services or the oil and gas industry. If you have all five companies are in that same industry, that is additional risk. It's maybe not quite as much as just investing in Exxon, but most industries sort of float up and down together with their market. So if Exxon goes down, then the other four stocks that you might have in that industry might be going down in a similar way. So yeah. That obviously is something we, we look for is how much risk you're taking on a, on a particular industry. But holding size is kind of what you're getting at too, is how much do I have in this one thing? Even if it's a mutual fund, obviously, again, that's a, a less risk than just one individual company, but it depends on the company. You, know, you could have one company stock that you're buying that may have potentially, depending on the industry and the dynamics of that company, more risk than one mutual fund or, or vice versa. It could be less risk than one mutual fund if you're in a fund that invests in, in highly volatile stocks or, or something of that nature. Yeah. And you also want to look at your company structure if you are investing in individual companies, because some companies are actually what we would call a conglomerate. So maybe that one company is kind of like an umbrella for tens of twenties of other companies. And so maybe you kind of already have some diversification. But like Mike said before, you also want to be cautious of, well, does this company own, we're going back to oil industry. I don't know why, but (laughs) does this Well, you mentioned Google too. We could go, we could go to the tech tech industry or something like that. Yeah. Like, or does this company own all tech companies or is the one company diversified across other industries? And this might be a good way to segue. I mean, this is interesting, but many people are looking at the value of their residents as an investment. And you can, we think of it primarily as a place to live, but you don't want to lose your shirt on your, on your residence. And hopefully you gain value. And many people right now are based on real estate values going up, especially in the market we're in, in Denver, but that's a concentration bet as well. I mean, you're, you're in one house, you're not in multiple houses. You're not, you know, and so that, that one piece of real estate is subject to a fairly narrow neighborhood and marketplace that you want to be aware of. You know, it's, it's a concentrated bet in one sense. You could also think about diversification with regard to your employment. Your employment is with typically one company, or maybe if you're independently employed, you're, you're, you know, a contractor or something like that. Maybe it's, maybe you've got multiple clients in one industry that has to be thought of in terms of, well, how much investment risk do I have there? Sometimes people might be really familiar with an industry because they work in it, maybe tech industry or the oil and gas industry. And then they invest even more of their dollars in that industry. And therefore they're taking, taking more risk that may be good or bad, but they want to do it consciously. Yeah, definitely. And same thing with within your household. So if you and your spouse and your parents are all in the same kind of industry, if there's a down market in that specific industry, then your whole family will feel that hit. Not to say you can't marry someone in the same industry, just saying things to be aware of. Like Mike said, maybe you don't want to overinvest your liquid assets in that same industry if you have a high correlation with where you're getting your paycheck every month. So how about this issue of, uh, you know, people use in our industry use this term rebalancing. What does that mean? It's a way of sort of systematically saying, I'm going to try to sell 
some of the winners that I have and buy some of the losers in a sense. I mean, you don't ever want to buy losers, quote losers. Um, and if you know a winner is going to win forever, again, going back to that idea of how perfect our knowledge is or is not, if I know a particular stock or an investment is just going to always go up, then you know, if I know that, I'm going to keep my money there. But rebalancing is a discipline in the in, in investment industry to say, I don't know, and it's okay to take some profits when I've got seen something go up and allocate to something that's maybe been un, underinvested or has been ignored by the investing community because that means it's probably relatively inexpensive. And, and just by that kind of activity of rebalancing on a systematic basis, I end up taking less risk and over time, maybe getting a better average return. Yeah. And so kind of putting that into, okay, how would this apply to an individual? So say, let's give us a stock. So I'm looking at an iron in my house right now. So say you own Black & Decker and you're invested in them and you're like, these are the best irons ever. And I think they make other products, but when you say, say iron, are you talking about a clothing iron? Is that what you're looking at right now? I have a clothing iron on my table. Do you actually iron clothing? <laughs> no, I was making t-shirts for my fiance's bachelor party. Oh, okay. And you were got, using iron to put like a uh, logo like on them. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know black and decker. I was, when I think of black and decker, I think of like hand tools, more like, uh, you know, drills or little saws or things like that. I didn't know they made irons. See, so maybe they're a diversified company. Mm-hmm. But so say you said, okay, well, this this company is great. I'm going to invest in it. And you're going to invest in that and three other things. We're keeping this simple. You got four investments total. Now let's say Black & Decker just takes off. And it has the best year it's ever had. And all of a sudden your share price is more than the other three share prices combined. So now 50% of your portfolio is in what was previously just 25%. That is where the rebalancing comes in. That's where what Mike is saying, it might be worthwhile taking some of the gains off the table just because, A, is do you want to have 50% of your investments in one specific company? Or should we go back to diversifying a little better? And and that's a a tough call sometimes because people think, well, this is going to keep doing well. We look at the past and think, okay, well, it's going to keep doing what it has done in the past. But as we say in investing, you know, past is no guarantee of future. You know, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. It can be uh, a, an indication of how well managed a company is or how the quality of the marketplace that they're in, the products and services that, they're, that are being demanded from that company. But it's a risk mitigation or risk reduction strategy to rebalance. As you're, as you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. So I had listed out on my little agenda for today that maybe we would talk about the different types of companies. So I, do you think it's worthwhile kind of going into, well, is it large cap, small cap? Yeah, I think it's worth touching on um, because when people look at their statements, either statements that we produce or things that they see on their 401k or uh, when they see another investment company statement, they see that, you know, the, these, this language of large cap, small cap, those kinds of things. And it's worthwhile touching on. A lot of our listeners probably already understand that, but it's worth just reminding them or introducing them to the idea that capitalization just, in a sense, refers to as size. So a large cap means it's a bigger company. The capitalization just is taking the number of shares that are outstanding and multiplying it by the current price per share and that's a value that the marketplace is putting on that company. You know, and on a tradable basis, that's what the market is saying the company is worth today. And if it's really a lot, 
you know, uh, in terms of hundreds of billions, then it's probably a large cap. And, and then you go down the, the scale. The Wall Street or the financial services industry has somewhat arbitrarily, you know, certain cutoffs between what is a large cap and what's a mid cap and what's a small cap and what's a, you know, on the, on the other end, a micro cap and on the flip side, a mega cap. But those are all just size of companies. Then you have this distinction we make. And again, this is somewhat arbitrary between what's a growth company and what's a value company. And those definitions, many investment companies have their own specific definition of valuation versus what kind of growth you can expect. Warren Buffett says those, those are false distinctions. They're, they're really joined at the hip is what what he says. But there is a, that style of investing. If you really are paying attention to history, actual real earnings, not projected future earnings, but actual real earnings and the multiples that you're getting right now, then you're probably a value manager, which is what we lean toward. If you're more about the story for the future, what's the growth that's going to happen in the future? Even if you don't even have a dime of earnings today, then you're likely more of a growth style investor. You're looking at the, the future, but everyone cares about the value of their investments and everyone wants to know that it's a growing thing. You don't want, you know, even if you buy something really cheap, and it's shrinking, that's that's not a good thing. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. those are somewhat false distinctions. You know, they, there's the other categories that we talk about, domestic or US-based investments versus international or global investments. There's lots of ways to carve that up into to, uh, basic geography. Well, what, where am I taking the risk? Where is my capital being invested? Where's my money being invested at geographically? Is it is it all in the US or is it all in European markets or is it all in Asian markets or is it spread around? Those kinds of things. So that's important to touch on. Uh, that also, on the same note, it, that sometimes gets into what people call like emerging markets. And I think a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, this this must be cool because it's emerging. And what, is, what does this really mean? And those are typically just those smaller markets that are kind of entering into the, into the kind of concept of investing. I think over the last handful of years, it seems like what was emerging now seems kind of everyday markets like isn't emerging markets typically like china and india whereas i think so there, there was an acronym frontier is even a step further and that's where you'd get like the africa and yeah and i think that's that's a good point to bring up because emerging from what yeah. or emerging into what well what it really boils down to and this is part of the fundamentals of investment that a lot of people don't think about but it boils down to they have and the other the flip side is we call it developed markets the us is a developed market and what that means is that for a marketplace to work, there has to be a certain level of trust and a certain level of stability and a rule of law and contracts have to be respected and property has to be respected. The parts of the world that don't rep recognize property rights or contracts and don't protect people's right in their property, then oftentimes don't have good trading that goes on because they don't feel like they can trust each other. They take each other. They take stuff from each other. Yeah. You know, they use violence and take things from each other rather than trade. And that is a fundamental distinction between you know a civilized society and a non-civilized society. Civilized meaning you know I recognize you have your own person and stuff, and I have my own person and stuff, and we can trade and make deals on a voluntary mutual exchange basis. Versus places that historically didn't have that, and they just kind of beat each other up and took each other's stuff. You know, might makes right type of thing. But more and more people, more and more countries around the world and more and more peoples around the world are seeing the cause and effect relationship between, well, if you do have that kind of trusting, stability, rule of law situation, then you're going to actually experience more prosperity. There's yeah. going to be a lot more prosperity. And so that's a good thing. And so they're wanting to move toward that. 
and more and more countries are merging out of those uh, four space economies that you, know, you don't get lots of trading into a market-based economy where you do have trading and you recognize that. And, and it becomes more, more and more sophisticated, not only on the contract law basis, but also on the technology basis where you have markets that use technology to trade things and give more liquidity. So there was the acronym for a little while there where it was the sort of a big emerging markets were China, India. The, it was, the acronym was BRICS, B-R-I-C, and that was Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Those were the big emerging ones for a while there. And you know, some of those countries are going backwards in terms of their protection of those things, protection of rights and property and contracts and so forth. And some of them are moving in the right direction. Again, the developed markets, Western Europe, the US has those as a legacy tradition. Now, hopefully we'll continue to, to have that. I mean, there, there are times when people go, well, we're going the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the frontier markets. Those are, and, and sometimes we, we actually invest in these a little bit, but you know, places that really don't have that kind of tradition or legacy of the rule of law. Um, there's some examples in Africa. There's some examples in, in Asia that, that are front, frontier markets because they have a lot more risk and they don't have that tradition of stability from those different attributes. Yeah. I don't know if that helps. No, I think that helps people. It kind of continues on the concept of, okay, well, how, how do I have things allocated in my portfolio? Is it when I open up my statement, does it say I have large cap? Now they understand what, what these different things can mean. Large cap, small cap, growth fund, blah, 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 international fund, this. Yeah. And traditionally a large cap fund or a large cap company is more stable or quote safe, right? If you have a tiny company that doesn't have a large capitalization, they haven't grown and haven't earned the economic power that say a lar much larger competitor in their industry or any industry, they haven't got that. So they're, they're riskier. And that was traditionally the truth with, with a uh, developed market type of investment versus emerging markets or frontier markets. And that's still the case. If you're investing in a geographic area that has a long tradition of respecting people's rights, then you're going to have more protections there and less risk versus if you invest in a frontier market where they don't have that long tradition, there may be more opportunity there, but there may be more of a gamble or, or more risk there as well. Definitely. So the last thing on the list of like, what should we discuss about what's in your portfolio is this concept of target date funds. And I think they're widely accepted because they seem to make things easy on people who don't typically want to make choices on their investments, but I, I think it should be just kind of clarified on, well, what does this mean? Or what is this doing in my account? Yeah. So a target day fund is like, it, kind of like it sounds, they put a date on it. And why would they put a date on it? Why would they say, okay, this fund is a target date, 2050 fund versus 2025 fund. Well, in investing, a big piece of the risk is how much time you have to let things work out. So if your time horizon is long, then typically you can afford to take more risks and see cycles, see some ups and downs in different markets. So what the market, and I call this somewhat marketing or purpose of a target date fund is to say, let's make that the primary focus here. If you tell us, Mr. and Mrs. Client, how long you have, for example, retirement, a lot of these target date funds are in retirement accounts or 401ks. Yeah. Uh, but if you tell us how long you have, or at least how long you're thinking you have, by buying into a concept of this is my target date to when I really will need my money back, I'll need that return of and on my money at that time, then the portfolio manager can 
tailor the risk to how much time you have. So if someone is way long-term, let's say for example, 2050, you know, that's over, you know, that's over 25 years. That's almost 30 years from now. That is an indication to the portfolio manager. You're fine with some more risk and they're going to pack it full of things that are more risky and growth oriented, such as stocks versus bonds, or even international and, and emerging market type stocks. They're going to put more of that in there to give you the chance of having higher growth over the long term. Versus if you said, I'm going to buy a target date fund that's 2022, or even, and, and a lot of times you can buy a target date fund that's already passed. You could buy a target date fund that is 2019. And one might go, well, why? that just means that they still have that portfolio, and but they've, they've weeded out lots or most of the equities or stocks that give it more risk and growth for more bonds and money market type things that give it more stability. That's just an indication of saying, well, I want something more stable. I mentioned, I think it's more of a marketing thing. So I, I don't usually use target date funds in our, our own portfolios that we make. And I don't even necessarily recommend them in client portfolios in their 401ks where we don't necessarily have direct control because I think they're lazy. I think it's a lazy person's way of, of investing, but it does simplify things. It is sort of a plug and play. And if you're, if a person doesn't want to complicate things, they can be fairly low, low expense ratio or low cost, but what they're usually doing is putting their fund of funds. So they're putting multiple funds within one fund and there are layers of fees that a person doesn't necessarily see. Um, so that's a downside. Yeah. So on, on the positives, they're plug and play simplification, make it easy on the investor to say, okay, all I have to do is determine my time frame. But on the downside, it's, it's not a very tailored or specific approach for your needs. And again, I don't necessarily favor them. I don't know if you have any other comments about target day funds. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to just add on that, yeah, they're really not tailored to you. So if you said, hey, I'm retiring in, yeah, 2025, but let's say you have a ton of other assets and you've already got the rest of your assets really kind of tailored to what your risk tolerance is. And maybe you're comfortable with even more risk because you have inheritance on the way. And maybe your plan has more moving pieces to it, which might change what the risk strategy you want is. So that type of fund may end up taking either more or considerably less risk than you would want to have. And in that case, you would likely either miss out on returns you wanted, or you would be taking on more risk than you're comfortable with and possibly have risk of loss. So I think it's always better to, if you can, and if you're comfortable with it, adjust things to your specific situation, not just what they assume about you. So the last section is really like, what do I do next? And I think this is kind of the point where we can kind of give you guys a call to action. If you're one of our clients and if you're listening to this and saying, okay, well, we've talked about most of this before. I mean, feel free to reach out to us if you have questions about your portfolio or why we're holding something or why we do or don't have a certain size of portfolio allocation to a specific fund. I mean, we love to talk about all that all the time, especially Mike. You can definitely get him on a roll talking about any of the investments we've chosen. Sounds like a shot. <laughs> But if you're not one of our clients, if you're just someone listening, tuning in and saying, okay, well, I have an account. Now I know what is an investment, what's not an investment, what's an investment account. Easy next steps. Okay, check what type of account do you have? So do you have an IRA? Do you have a 401k? Is your account Roth? Is it traditional? That'll tell you what the taxability on the assets in that account are. If you have further questions, shoot me an email. I'm happy to help. Next, yeah, what is the taxability on that kind of account? 
just kind of continue on as we just said. Next, you want to look at, okay, well, what kind of contributions are in my account? I can't even name how many times I've had friends, family, just people in general that I talk with and they'll say, oh, well, I'm maximizing my account and maybe they're only contributing 2% because that's the max that their employer contributes. I don't want you to feel like you're limited to the amount that your employer is contributing to. There are actual maximums. I Today, I didn't put it in front of me, but I think I have, I think it's what, eight, is 18,000? Well, there, there are IRS maximums for various different kinds of retirement accounts. And that's what you're talking about. And, and yeah. the big thing is that someone shouldn't delude themselves into thinking they're maximizing their account if they're just taking advantage of the employer maximum. Because it that won't be, in most cases, that won't be nearly enough for you to feel like you have enough for security when you're ready to retire, when we're talking about a retirement account. Yeah. And there are much larger maximums that the IRS has. And that's the thing to pay attention to. And, and really to pay attention to what your goals are, what, what you're trying to accomplish goal-wise. Yeah. And then next, so you, you know what kind of account you have. You know the taxability. You know what you're putting into it. Now check how do you have it allocated? Is it all in one fund? Is it in multiple funds? Um, is it in a target date fund? Is it? Do you have any kind of international exposure? And then... Decide really what kind of risk do you want to be taking on that type of account? And do you think that the allocation that you've made so far really matches that? And I know that's that's probably the hardest thing on this to-do list is to say, okay, well, what is the risk in what I have? And am I comfortable with that risk? But like we said, look at your holding size. Is one of your holdings 50% of your portfolio or is it 30% of your portfolio? Is that really something you're really believing in or is it maybe time for a little bit of rebalancing lastly a little plug for altius <laughs> so if you if you get to the end of this list and you're going okay i think i'm making progress but I, I really don't know what to do next i want someone to help me kind of clarify what strategy i should be doing what i should be investing in look to hire or at least interview with some financial advisors and wealth managers um we're we're a great resource sometimes you can get some free information out of them and oftentimes they can be a great way to help you make sure you're staying on track for your goals. Yeah, definitely. Um, come talk to us is what she's saying. <laughs> <laughs> or talk to someone who you feel like you can, uh, that you like and trust. But let's kind of wrap this up. I, I really appreciate uh, people listening to our podcast. We're inviting you to follow, like, and friend us on our social media, including Instagram and Facebook. And Taylor, I don't know, did you, we just got back with our, our from our little offsite. Did you put that little video up? I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, you're able to real. see that now. <laughs> That's cool. <Yep. laughs> anyway, our, our all of our platforms are saved as Altius Financial, all one word. It's typed out that way, and you should see our logo as the profile picture for Instagram and Facebook. As many of you are already aware of, we have a 53-week financial challenge, and we're inviting anyone who listens to join along and participate. It's just a way to have weekly little assignments and, and check the box, just making continuous progress from one week to the next. This week's challenge is to check on your investment accounts, as we've been discussing, just kind of do a quick checkup on, on how you're invested, how much risk you have, what kind of allocations you have. You know, reviewing those things that we've discussed today, if you have a financial advisor, when was the last time you did a check-in meeting with them? Was it this year? Do you have one on the calendar? Are you forward looking and planning about, okay, this is when I'll do another review. When was the last time you checked your allocation or performance? If you're interested in setting up a plan or have any questions or comments or thoughts or suggestions for us, please feel free to reach out directly to either one of us at michael at altiusfinancial.com. 
taylor at altiusfinancial.com. You can also check out the website. And thanks for, for joining us again. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Happy Friday, everyone. Happy Friday. Thank you. Thank you.